from Central Sauce and the Fifth Element Podcast Network. This is In Search of Sauce, a celebration of the writers who are saving music journalism from death by clickbait. I am Brandon Hill, uh, editor and writer at Central Sauce, frequently writer at OK Player. Uh, with me today, I have Mickey Hellerback, who is also a writer at Central Sauce and many, many other places, as well as the host of another Fifth Element Podcast Network show, 92 Till. Also today with me, I have Tyler, who is an accomplished and published poet, as well as a writer and playlister for Central Sauce. Today, we've got a great lineup of articles that we're going to discuss today. We're going to be talking about how TikTok uh, is making space for women in rap specifically, We're going to talk about uh, Chris Brown and how, um, you know, the networks that allow abusers to continue getting work in this industry. And then we're going to close out by discussing an excellent Q&A with Vic Mensa, who is just like one of my favorite people's interviews to to read. So uh, we're going to go ahead and just jump right in today with our first article. So, Tyler, it's all you. Take it away, man. Uh, it's my article B, but <laughs> did I flip those oh. around? Oh, okay. Right. All right. Yeah. All right. Mickey's Mickey's got yeah, it. Yeah. Mickey's yeah. Got it. Okay. I, I got it. Not the smoothest transition, but we out here, we making it work. We're all in, in between many things today. You know what I'm saying? Uh, excited to be back for another episode of the podcast and really excited to talk about this first piece today, who is by a writer. I've actually been uh, looking forward to eventually featuring on the podcast because she's been putting out such excellent work as a staff writer at Pop Sugar. And I must say, she is also from Baltimore. Her name is Najera Perkins. And the piece that she wrote is again titled TikTok is making space for today's women in rap to thrive. Uh, first and foremost, what I really like about this piece is it's a really well reported trend piece, which I personally have found is something on my pitching journey that editors seem to always be looking for and always very difficult to on my end and like how my brain works to pitch a really good one that then lands and then is put out though. I've done a few. uh, This I think is like a really good sort of, if you're looking for how to sort of form a trend piece, a really good example to look at. Um, This feels also like an example of how to be really timely and intentional with this style of piece And it also evokes many reverberating conversations, which I hope to have with the two of you guys today. Um, So the piece is about how there is a sizable uptick in women rappers elevating their career paths via TikTok virality. And Najera sets out to find why. Uh, This is a trend. If you're tapped in whatsoever to rap, you are aware of it, whether it be for someone like Ice Spice, Lola Brooke, Baby Tate, or many more. Baby Tate just sort of revived uh, a song that samples Hey Mickey, which is a song that I've been hearing the entirety <laughs> of my life. Um, but it's really dope. And so this has just been a really cool outlet. Um, I want to read actually this paragraph first as we get into the conversation, which is Najera uh, tying in her own personal experience super concisely and pointedly. And uh, it really sets up the rest of the piece and the other voices she includes. She wrote, In contrast with their male counterparts, female rappers have likely seen more success on TikTok because the platform acts as a niche space for young women, especially young black women, to be their authentic, unapologetic selves, a luxury that's not always afforded to us in in real life and without obstacles like sexism standing in their way, which women in rap have historically dealt with in terms of being recognized for their achievements and skills. TikTok has paved the way for women to be the platform's authoritative voices in hip hop. 
So she is so specifically expressing how the platform provides agency for space building and connection without male interference. As the piece continues, she speaks to expert industry reps and artists alike about how they've been able to successfully maneuver the platform in their own ways, which I think is really poignant um, sort of expression of the advantages of social media um, and how uh, it's just providing new spaces for people to really have, again, their own agency, I think is the big word that kept reverberating in my mind to maneuver it in a way that works for them, that the industry itself may not provide wholeheartedly. Um, now I want to sort of talk about one of those sort of reverberating conversations that I think this piece spurs based off of actually my personal sort of journalistic experience. What this piece made me think of so specifically is what I've noticed in my own personal deep diving on producers. First, the difference of credited female producers in all recorded music to male is still so staggering and off tilt in a way that needs to be talked about way more. However, I made a huge discovery when I started to do a producer, deep producer dive on TikTok specifically. So many of my favorite instrumentalists and producers I found on the app just happened to be women. I even last year wrote a list for OK Player, uh, about 10 TikTok instrumentalists and producers to follow. And I swear, just based off of my own personal taste, seven or eight out of the 10 were women who I wanted to feature in the piece. Um, it made me realize there's a much bigger conversation to be had about women being more comfortable sharing their gifts in this space and how there's even more conversations to be had about women not being in the major studio spaces as credited producers enough because of a variety of factors. This piece is an impeccably written beginning of a huge spanning conversation about systemic inclusion and how women are so dopely using platforms like TikTok to level the playing field, even though, in my opinion, and seems like Najera's opinion, they truly shouldn't have to. They should be given more opportunities within the general space, but they have to feel like they have to navigate at a platform and make it their own and finesse it because those spaces aren't provided. Um, but shout out to all the women who are using TikTok, especially women rappers who are featured in this piece and women producers to their full advantage. The stuff that they're doing is incredible. And I'm really glad Najera highlighted it so well with this piece. That was a lot. I know it's a big intro. I'm known for big intros. This is a big one. I had a lot to say. Um, <laughs> Brandon, Tyler, I think just just generally, let's start at least on the topic of the piece itself, what you took away from it, and then we'll get into anything it made you think of. But uh, why don't we start with Tyler? What did the piece spur for you? Uh, what the piece spurred for me, it was like, I'm glad. It, it, well, it spurred it made me think of was like, I'm glad that women and music have another way to thrive and be and and take control of their career because like regardless of like how you these are if you think these artists are a manufacturer like oh it's like this little viral moment is like we now have something new you have something different um ice spice is probably the most current artist that i'm thinking well no excuse me not even like ice spice um uh, who's just an artist, lola brooke uh yeah. is probably i've one of now one of my new favorite not just women rappers it's like just one of my new favorite rappers is like i love her energy i love her flow that song gets me hype is like it's definitely flat in the gym and yeah. but um she was able to have that moment because of tiktok yeah and and it made me appreciate just because um because we, I, I'm still like as as music journalists, we're always still trying to find new music. Mickey puts me on this new stuff every day, um, but it, it makes me appreciate the platform 
even while because while a lot of people may discredit the platform for being a just for kids thing it's become so much it's evolved and become so much more where people can market themselves they can expose people and you have to do uh, um to, to their music it doesn't have to be through a dance it doesn't have yeah. to be through a challenge it can be through just like it's almost another way of like almost like gra- digital grassroots in a way to get your mm. stuff out there bars i like digital grassroots a lot and uh grassroots also sort of like ties into the idea of like the purity of something too to me at least in my head and another kind of great thing that najera did in this piece was make sure to to note that um not only are are women using women rappers using tiktok to their advantage but they're also able to show off how good rappers they are like people like glorilla and like you mentioned lola brooke even though the sort of general context of TikTok is it's like these little snippets of not like high level artistry that the women have finessed the app so much to even be able to go viral off of highlighting how good of rappers they are, which I think is super impressive where honestly to me, even on the male side, uh, the like male TikTok virality, I think is not so much based off of the craft of rapping, but I think it very, I think it was a really cool and sort of thing that I was like, Oh yeah, she's totally right about that. That like there's the craft of rapping that is also highlighted for these women who are breaking out on TikTok, which is really dope. Uh, Brandon, what did you and, think oh, overall? Oh, go ahead, Tyler. Oh, I'm sorry. Just as a quick little tidbit as well. It always seems like the women in rap and, and women artists in general, and like especially and that are black or uh, POC, they they always have to find this new innovative way to market themselves. Yeah. Well, like as you said, their male their male counterparts can just have a hit song and honestly they really don't do much mm. of it. it just seems like the industry grabs them first yeah. they're like oh another another new male hip-hop artist or r&b artist let's make them a star while the women it seems like they are finding new, constantly finding new ways to market themselves because they aren't getting that attention they think it is just a cute moment and they leave it alone while yeah. they are literally taking the moment for themselves and running with Yeah. And I mean, that's a great place for me to jump off of, too, because I can, you know, and part of that, Tyler, I think is because historically uh, women in hip hop have often been pitted against each other. You know, it often comes up in the conversation of, you know, who are the top five rappers? And it's Mm -hmm. always four men and there's always one slot reserved for a woman. Right. Um, And so that has led to, you know, like famously like the Nicki Minaj, Cardi B uh drama you know and it's and it's not always like driven by the artists a lot of times it is driven by the fans um and it's part of the reason why you know when a new uh female artist comes along with a with a debut album there's so much pressure put on that debut album because the attitude surrounding it is like this is you know here's the new person coming for the spot here's that debut album here they come um and so much so like maybe part of it's tiktok maybe part of it's gen z um but so much about that attitude seems to have changed um, where now we have, you know, women really advocating for other women, uh, seemingly especially on TikTok. Um, there seems to be a lot of energy given to, like, supporting artists who are historically or traditionally marginalized for the sake of boosting them in a way that, like, they were not boosted before. Um, I recently spoke with Olivia Shalhoop of The Purple Room, um, which is a really, really dope, really popular platform that's growing on TikTok. That's all about, you know, platforming like authentic artists um, and, you know, giving them giving them a space to do that. But part of the way that they've curated their content is through generating these very like natural sort of fan page feels. Um, And Olivia has told me that the most popular one of her fan pages is the Drill Girls fan page. You know, and we talked we talked sort of about how people people get more excited 
to see new spaces and new platforms for for artists that you know didn't historically have that kind of space or platform for themselves um and tiktok definitely seems to you know facilitate that uh, more so than previous you know social media apps or marketing strategies and i wonder you know there's a there's another piece in here somewhere that's that sort of answers the question of whether or not that has to do with the features that are built into tiktok or even something as simple as the fact that TikTok is the newest platform. And so with with a large portion of young people starting out the platform, uh, you know, they curated that attitude right from the start. Whereas, you know, Twitter, if you're trying to develop like a whole new attitude or whole new, you know, feeling on the app, it, you know, it, it's it's much more difficult to do because there's people who have been you know, ingrained in the trends or the features or the or the ways that that things have traditionally marketed or existed on those different apps. Yeah, Brandon, you're talking that talk. So this goes back to why I specifically said in my intro that what I love so much about this piece is that it creates reverberating conversations and then reverberating pieces, which is the one you're talking about. But I want to go back to the first thing that you said about um, sort of how sort of historically in hip hop women rappers are pitted against each other. And you said that that has a lot to do with the fans. I also want to add to that, that that inherently has to do with the industry itself, which then spurs a sort of scarcity mindset. There's only room for enough of us, but what this piece Mm. is sort of exploring, I think inherently and creating again, one of those other reverberating conversations is these women have found that TikTok slowly, but surely has allowed an opportunity to eliminate uh, elements of that scarcity mindset and allow different sort of individual mm. curated spaces through the apps for multiple women to thrive and even form more of a community element rather than having to have so much of a scarcity mindset, which is ingrained within not, I mean, honestly, not just hip hop culture, but also just music culture in general when it comes to women artists. Um, so yeah, again, just definitely wanted to say again, I think that seems to be the point of like trend pieces, right? Is to then reverberate, kind of add to the dialogue that's happening and then reverberate, set an idea in place, reverberate conversations to be had by people who are reading the pieces and other journalists to write even more pieces. So I think that that's what this does really well. Yeah. And, you know, just as a, because since I personally like actually don't use TikTok, but totally understand like why it's so, so vital to the music. I, I'm curious about your perspectives. I think I'm pretty sure you both pretty actively use TikTok, right? Yeah, sure. Ish. Yeah. So I'm, I, I'm curious. I, 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 use, I know I used to, but like, I still see it, but like, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm just curious because you hear all the time about like TikTok being this new platform for music discovery, right? Sure. And there's kind of two different ways that I, I see that panning out. And I'm curious to see which one seems to be more prominent. Mm-hmm. Is it music discovery in the sense that I get on TikTok or TikTok for other content? <laughs> and as I'm scrolling, I hear a snippet and I'm like, oh, wow, this is fire. Like, let me go look up the artist and let me go find the artist. Sure. Or is it more along the lines of there are people literally that are like, oh, I need to find some new music or some new songs. And mm-hmm. I'm going to TikTok specifically to do that. I think it's a fucking collage. Like, so here, the other thing, the way that, so I can only speak personally because first of all, everyone's TikTok algorithm is different. That's like the first thing, but it it really is all over the place. So like, it could be a scroll up where you just hear a random thing that you clock in and you're like, oh, this is dope. But I think the, the way that honestly, funny enough that I've 
discovered most of the music I've discovered is from sort of list style curation by TikTok creators. I think there's like right. multiple of them who are sort of really interestingly putting me on to like niche versions of genre types that I'm already interested in and finding like nicher versions of, of like that style that are more intriguing to me. Um, I think the most recent one I can think of actually is this UK rapper named Bawo. I believe that's how you pronounce it. B-A-W-O. Um, but he's like really very, very dope in the sort of ilk of Dave, but sort of on his own wave has a little bit of Baltimore club in this kind of vibes in this one song that I really like called turn and face. But that was totally by someone who was like, this, these are the best UK rap drops of the month of February or something. And it, it really like stood out to me or January and stood out to me. And I tapped into that. But yeah, I think for me personally, can't speak for everyone else. Every, everything's different. The thing that's really tapped in with me is actually some really great TikTok curators who have uh, sort of put together sort of lists of new drops and interesting sort of more indie artists that I'm intrigued by. Um, for me, uh, it's uh, so part of it is similar to Mickey. It's like I know that a lot of curators that also put out playlists. For me, it's like the easiest thing I can always like put on if I'm trying to find some new stuff: Spotify playlists, Apple playlists, and they ha and these curators will already have like a link in their either bio or video or whatever it may be to this new playlist they put out. I'm like, all right, cool. I can I'm now finding new music, and or it's uh, literally seeing a person be like, hey, if you like so and so. Like they'll name like five artists, like Miguel, Frank Ocean, whatever. Yeah, like, that's like, like a common this. trend too. Yeah, yeah. you'll then you'll like this person, and they're like, they're, and in that TikTok, it'll probably have like snippets of like three or sometimes four songs. How many they can fit in there of that artist? And then I'm like, oh, cool, that's that's really nice. Yeah. Um, but I know for when it, if for me, also like once again, y'all can probably relate to as well. As someone who has younger like uh, cousins or nieces and nephews. They'll put me on the stuff through because they've heard about it through TikTok, or they're now hearing, hearing about artists that I've known about for a while through TikTok. Like the whole, like we've uh, we've all we're all friends on the internet. We know who Dave Lacey is. My niece and nephew did not. They heard about him, especially that song "Bad Habit" through TikTok. Yeah, mm -hmm. just because like his sound was the trending sound, and the whole entire point of TikTok is like, well it's not it's not necessarily supposed to be original it's supposed to be everyone's doing the same trend that's what it's about is see who can like who can put a new spin on it a little bit right. better but they still use that same sound the point to our point is to be the same but different yeah. so i think when it comes to like these artist discoveries and everything in nature people are discovering these artists is like maybe a sound is hit uh is um caught on and for mickey um knowing his his club music there are so many sped up versions and club versions of, <laughs> yeah, now, yeah, of yeah. songs now that I'm totally. where he's like, yo, he's like, that's my region. That's not normally a song that would be part of the region, but like now it is because like someone's remixed it. So yeah. people keep finding these new avenues of music and even variations of it through just set this because they are, if I want to get my video to go viral, here's that sound that everyone's using. Yeah, just to wrap up the conversation of the piece and go back to what Najera is saying is that sort of community building that Tyler is describing is exactly what these women rappers are taking advantage of um, and finding their community in that space, which just provides way more opportunity for it. That's a good way to wrap it up. Tyler, we can go ahead and move on to your piece. All right, lovely. So I have the piece titled Why Do So Many Black Women Keep Working With Chris Brown, with Chris Brown by Hannah Pfeiffer for Refinery on 29. 
Um, first of all, I've been a fan of Hannah for a very, very long time. Uh, I, most people probably know her square persona written by Hannah, who is freaking hilarious, but also an amazing writer. I've been trying to find something to bring to the podcast for a minute, but it seems like whenever she drops something, it's, uh, it's not my turn. And it's just, it, it gets cluttered, but I was able to find this one because it is, because it's relevant. It was, um, published not that long ago. And it just really works to where um, with this conversation of why do people keep working with abusers, misogynist, mom, misogynists, everything of that nature, and they and and especially for Chris for the Chris Brown conversation because of the recent collaboration that he had with Chloe, why do women keep working with um, Chris Brown? Which I do want to preface before we really get into this conversation, we are of course three men. Talking about how what how what women do in their uh, do with their artistry and how they may process abusers and everything of that nature, but I think Hannah lays down this puts together this article really well into why 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 might they like it's it, with the like answering the question with and giving some answers but not giving a end all be all. One of them being it could just it could be the label it could you could simply blame it on the label right like because chris brown still has a name in this industry pete the label will put together a collaboration we see that all the time through artists artists won't even know each other but they collab but they have a collaboration i think one of my most uh my funniest stories when it comes to me when it comes to a song of like knowing that is like how bob and bruno mars got together when that song originally was like lupe fiasco it was a label thing so sometimes we can blame it for these women, these um, these women blame uh, working with Chris Brown, purely through a label thing, or two, it could just simply be because we as a society are okay with excusing it because it's we're trying to find an excuse for this particular black male artist while other white artists are still thriving with the same accusations, if not worse or more or less, right? So, but I, once again, this is more a conversational piece. Mm. So I wanted to ask, may, uh, maybe starting with Mickey. Yeah. But because we can also, once again, put that blame on the male artists as well. I would like to, for the first question, I would like to ask, maybe why don't these male artists that also work with Chris Brown get as much hate, or maybe I'm not seeing it. Mm. Um, well, I think, and kind of the piece sort of talks about it, and there's a link to another piece at the bottom that's talking about there's, first of all, the sort of obvious thing is that like, there's not as much uproar from the fans of the male artists. Like the thing that sort of spurred Mm. this Chloe thing is because Chloe's fans were like, what the hell? Why are Mm. you doing this? So then that like in turn sort of creates this dialogue that then creates this piece is just like if the male fans of the male artists were more in an uproar of people work of their favorite artists working for Chris Brown, working with Chris Brown, then it would like spur more of this like dialogue of you shouldn't be doing this. But that's like what's specific about this. Um, And sort of to go to the thing that I wanted to talk about that I appreciate about this piece is um i think this is such an intentional and tactful piece those are the two words i would use i think it really answers and is so tactful in figuring out like okay who is this for 
and what do I want them to take away? Um, and I think a hugely, to me at least, what who the piece seems to be for are any person who's in the vicinity of of the idea of over time having some level of forgiveness and who anyone who doesn't have a true timeline of Chris Brown's patterned behavior. Um, so I think a really tactful way that really stood out to me is as hugely important that Hannah does in this piece is reflect on her own previous thought processing on the issue and then break down exactly in, in a paragraph she does really well break down exactly how she sort of came around to the other side of the ideology, um, which was brought forth by Chris Brown himself of like, if you're going to shit on me for all of this stuff, what about all of these white men who have also done these things and how like, obviously there's some validity and it's like, yes, obviously there's a, there's a racial element to this that absolutely exists, but we shouldn't do that to sort of shun away the conversation of how you should be held accountable. Um, but, but very, you know, empathetically breaking down her own thought processing of getting to that, that, um, conclusion, I think is, is a really important and again, tactful way to attempt to enlighten the minds of, of people who may be in the same place that she was in the thinking about everything. Um, and I can go into the, how she breaks down the timeline of events too, just really quickly before I, I pass it back to one of you all. I thought that was hugely important to the general ideology going against the sort of rhetoric that Chris Brown himself is sort of putting out there, literally, mm-hmm. and and how there's also sort of a pattern of lies of his own recollection, quote unquote, of what happened. The thing with Rihanna happened when he was 20, not 17, like he says. And she breaks down a very specific timeline of all of the other really patterned behavior of um, claims of abuse for his a mix of deep personal relationships and not so much and how it sort of goes back and forth. And it's the same pattern of women accusing him of different things and how that is an insane thing to ignore in the context of this whole conversation. Um, But breaking down the timeline in a really, again, tactful and insightful way for those who may be in a place where she was originally in the thinking and uh, bring them Mm -hmm. to where she is now. Um, Yeah. I just, I thought, I thought it was really effective. Brandon. Yeah. I think this piece does, you know, one of like the core aspects of journalism, which is really, really always good to see when it's done as well as this one is, which is, telling a story and using that story to create a record of a conversation, right? Um, A conversation that's being had among, you know, among culture, like between people um, at any given time. And, you know, like Mickey said, like you need that track record of, of holding the, like the lies to account, holding the, the, you know, creating the full picture and not allowing the people like Chris Brown, who has significant power, influence and sway over the industry to just create a narrative that persists past um, what's actually happening and the actual truth. And the way I specifically like mentioned, like, you know, using a story as a vehicle to tell that is because this 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 piece isn't it's about Chris Brown, but it's obviously about so much more than Chris Brown. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminds me, I'd recently watched the She Said the movie about the journalist who uncovered the Harvey Weinstein story. And there's a really powerful scene in that where actually I think it might be, I'm remembering two separate scenes, but there's one scene where the reporter's editor comes to her and she's like, 
pressing her like why do you think this story is so important to come after one guy like you know why are we doing all this for one guy and she's like it's not one guy it's this whole system that protects abusers Mm -hmm. and then later on in the film she's having a meeting with um someone over i think over in the uk or something and the person brings out all this documentation all the ways that the that the courts have protected weinstein and silenced her and all this kind of stuff um that builds up and so you know in the same instance like the piece is talking about this discourse between why why does Chris Brown continually to be, be put in the spot? Why why do people continue to work with him? But then it goes through and it pulls all these aspects out of the system um, yeah. that enable that sort of continued support of him. You know, the the headline reads, you know, why do black women continue to support Chris Brown? But yet the piece itself doesn't actually point fingers. Um, the piece itself is using that question to initiate a conversation. And then it poses multiple, multiple answers to that conversation, you know, and and without any of them being like, this is the sole reason. And this is where I'm pointing the finger. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's one, it's the way that um, there is some validity to what's being said about redirecting the conversation towards why white men in the industry don't take as much responsibility. Um, There is some to be said, Mickey, you mentioned how, uh, male fans don't seem to have the same reaction that Chloe's fans do, you know? And like I said earlier, earlier with the TikTok piece, we have much younger audiences, you know, the Gen Z audiences really finding their voice. And we see over and over again that they're really advocates for um, that kind of social justice, social awareness, like accountability, because um, they've grown up more with those attitudes and they're more ready to, to be vocal because they've seen the ways that people have been silenced in the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you of course have, what really stood out to me too was the point being made that like, okay, maybe it's the labels that are doing this. Right. And, and when a label makes someone, you know, work with an artist for that number one hit, there's so many reasons why that woman can't come out and be like, Hey, I didn't really want to do that. Um, I think even one artist, there's a quote from an interview where she actually kind of mentions that. Yeah. It's worth, yeah. It's worth pointing out how, how brave that that is of its own volition, right? Even after, you know, after having worked with them, because that can direct, you know, the, the people in power who, who, you know, see that kind of thing, like they don't want that response. You know, there can be repercussions within internal industry stuff that can like result from that. Um, And that's the reason why you don't see as much of that dialogue, like in that particular instance there. Um, And you can relate also, but, she gives the example of his response to that, <laughs> that thing that Tanache said, which directly right, that ties was a, yeah. to the same responses he gives when he's accused of the abuse that he's accused of. And you see that again, another example of the sort of pattern, patterned, like talking down to diminutive behavior, um, which I yeah, think and, is the through line throughout the whole thing. It's this, this, this constant case of lashing out, right? That yeah. it's where it's the lack of it's it's and Mickey I'm glad you brought up the um how Hannah takes accountability for having a mindset because once our it's I think also we'll see a th- a kind of like a thorough line for all these pieces once we get into like that uh that third interview with uh Vic how accountability is almost you could say the common theme she takes accountability with where she was in her mindset the lack of accountability of Chris Brown to really accept his actions and change right yeah, and it, and even like and even show an ounce of actual uh, worthy of, of redemption, and how we as fans and other artists who happen to work with him need to also take accountability. It's put it's an example of taking accountability, not taking accountability, and then putting the ball in your court as the reader 
listener, artist, to then to what is your accountability in the process of Chris Brown? Yeah. Yeah, that's a good question or a good point. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think what needs to be mentioned, too, for sure, is how she sort of wraps it all up and buttons it at the end where she then takes the sort of label ideologies and the theories and then also does not deny that there's like a level of internalized misogynoir that sort of factors into the the set of black women within the industry who are sort of defending him and then at then really sort of closes it all out and she sets all that up to be said by beginning with her own perspective again to be then able to sort of go through the piece and then land on that and then sort of ends with this idea that is hugely important, which is if if this keeps happening, what support can black women victims expect within the industry and the world writ large, which is the real reason for having the conversation is like, if this keeps happening, then what is the effect on the women who are victimized and them being able to have a voice? Mm. To move forward, we have to like, we have to see what we're doing right now. Yeah. Really important piece, I think. A really important piece, and again, that goes like to the 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 tact of it is really important. It it feels very worked through and very very intentionally put together throughout. I like the, I mean, even just like the writing style of it, like the way that like the first person aspect is sort of like gently laced in at the start, but it still is mostly like a reported piece. You know, ninety nine percent a reported piece, but there's just enough of that first person to sort of give you that sort of perspective that seems necessary for this. So as we're wrapping up this, uh, Brandon, let's go to your piece and uh, accountability in a good way. Absolutely. Yeah, that's <laughs> good transition. My piece is Vic Mensa from Bad Boy to Good Man by Jade Gomez in paper. And let me pivot to my notes here. So I like a lot of people really love watching um, Ben Staples interviews, right? Well, in the same way that people love that, I love reading Vic Mensa interviews. Um, This man is so intentional with his word choices and intentional with the way that he speaks. And he, on top of that, is extremely well-read, extremely self-reflective. And a lot of that, you know, can even be seen in just the length of this Q&A piece, right? There is so much transcript. There's so many words from Vic Mensa that are injected into this piece. Um, And they're always, you know, around every turn is, no matter what the question, there's always some piece of like extremely intelligent, like self-reflection and commentary on, you know, world at large within that self-reflection. Um, for example, I'm just going to read this this one quote from Vic that's um, a bit further down in the piece here. So he says, I just read this book by Deepak Chopra. It's called The Spontaneous Fulfillment of Desire. And basically he's putting significant weight on coincidences and recognizing, taking note of them as God speaking to you or the universe or whatever you believe in. I'm taking note of those coincidences. I know what it means to be fucking put into the world death and destruction and to manifest that and think about that all the time didn't work out for me. The piece kind of carries this arc of, of Vic's journey, which is really like, it, it doesn't take the, the 
the kind of easy stance to take, which is like he's now at the end of this enlightened journey and now he's a finished product, right? It, it covers all the like ups and downs, all the valleys, all the internal um, stuff that he still grapples with. And, you know, there, for example, there's a part in it where he talks about um, leaving a club with his girl and a guy throws a drink in his face and he just gets in the elevator and like goes on about his business. But he says, he says like, you know, there's a part of me that knows like back in the day, like I would have gone back and I would have, you know, he, he uses some pretty, um, pretty direct language even, you know, cause he's honest with himself. And he says, I would have not considered the consequences of that. And I would have just dealt with whatever the outcome arose, but because he's had this like self-reflective learning um, because of the reading and the study that he's done, you know, he, he's aware of that. He's aware of like how, how he functions in comparison to how he used to function, how he wants to function ideally, like all these extremely like self-aware thought processes. And also um, shout out to Jade as well for her, her writing chops on this piece. Like she gets a decent chunk at the start of the Q and a to really flex like her own writing uh, before digging into this transcript, which is pretty, you know, on, on pretty short questions followed by like long, long bits of transcript. Um, and I think that just speaks to how well, you know, Vic talks, I'm sure it was like more conversational, but you really got to give, you really got to give Vic Mensa the space um, in these written transcripts. But I want to read this one paragraph uh, from Jade's introduction. So she writes, uh, Mensa dances between infectious aggression and a jarring calm. He snarls in the face of police brutality, water crises, presidential elections, and mental health on the aptly titled There's a Lot Going On, culminating in a fuck-it-all attitude that has accompanied him through some of his riskiest endeavors. The Chicago rapper even veered into punk music, forming 93 punks and embedding himself in the liberation and adrenaline of skate culture. One of Mince's biggest strengths as a jack-of-all-trades was also seen as a weakness, and he stuck a middle finger at it all as he continued to use his music as a chance to get to the essence of himself. Um, and then just to wrap up here, just to briefly touch on like just each subject in order that's kind of covered in this Q and a, um, and then I want to, when I toss it off to you, I want you guys to just start with like, read your favorite quote uh, from Vic, like out of this piece, because there's so many uh, jumping off points for the conversation. So the subjects kind of touched on are Vince's growing spirituality uh, and sorry, Vic's growing spirituality and reconnecting to Ghana and his ancestors, uh, the lack of American hip hop artists touring in Africa and how Vic's Black Star Line Festival was all about pushing back against the propagandized image of Africa, uh, voyeuristic hip hop media, specifically Vic's former beef with academics, uh, the label of conscious rappers and where he kind of sees himself in that space, uh, his foray into punk music, the attacks he got for dressing in drag and changing his style, um, his recent entrepreneurship into cannabis. And another interesting little tidbit here is um, that Vic did a 12-step program to, to address sex and love addiction, sex and love addiction, and he's got some really, really good insight on on um, his perspective about going through that process. And then again, shout out Jade, um, the last sort of subject that's covered here. There's this really like straightforward question that says, "When did you start to envision a longer life for yourself?" And that question is such a like wow punch followed by like all these different things all the ways that Vic um you know discusses how like violence has been present in his life how he's struggled with all this like inner turmoil himself and 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 you know studied and learned his way out of it um so then to just like float that question that seems simple but carries so much weight at that point in the piece uh when did you start to envision a longer life for yourself uh was just really really powerful
so yeah, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw it to you guys. Just if you want to start, like, pick out that quote uh, that really spoke to you, and and let's go from there. Tyler, you start. I'm looking for my quote. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> good, because I, I, it's funny. I did have mine pulled up because it was um, kind of hit me today, and I was like, oh man, let's talk, let's talk about self love. Let's, let's talk about self love. Mm-hmm. Um, when um, when Jay says it is human instinct to want to be loved and accepted, he responds, and it's like this. It's, I'm going to read the paragraph in like this sentence right after that, but he says, 100% it is. And the thing I have just been striving towards and learning is that ultimately God accepts me and I accept myself. I have this thing I say to myself, God accepts me. Therefore, man accepts me. I accept myself. Nothing can interfere with the divine design of my success. I repeat that in my mind when I find myself too lost in what other people think about me. Many of the things that people demonize for me or demonize me for or judge me for end up being popular. And I was like, I was like, God, man, because as once again, as we were talking about accountability earlier, this is a man who's who seems to and is constantly trying to take accountability for his past actions, who he was and who he's trying and essentially who he's trying to be. And you see that these. And um, to get into what I think about the article super, super quickly is at first, I didn't know it was going to be a Q&A. It read like a profile at first. Yeah. So but, so when it transitions to the q and I was like, oh, 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 my. Because um, I was enjoying the profile, almost the profile like intro piece of it um, so much that I was like, I was like, OK, we're going to get to like, the, you know, the standard Q&A style. And then it wasn't. Um, I discussed many times on here on like when you do a Q&A or an interview, how in kind of like you're letting the artist talk or you're or you're talking and you're almost like weaving your way through that. Right. This was almost like a mixture of both. And her uh, her responses and questions were one, ve- like very much so pointed to whatever he was saying before. So it's not just like your set your set of questions was once, once again, that's something we want to make sure we do as interviewers. If we do interview an artist, that's not just our list of questions and two is as you were saying before this is a long q a in the best way possible and the fact that he really got to speak and she let all the she almost let this man go through the processes and have these large chunks of just processing the question and himself at the same time as that quote i was saying at the beginning god accept me so I accept myself and he's accepting himself with his answers as he's speaking and we get to read that. So I think Jay did a fantastic job of that. I also think like how she was able to, it was a really, like I said, sprawling interview where she almost gets to discuss like all his, like, as the, the 12 steps he went to, it was almost like the, the steps of like him accepting himself and where he is now and how we get to see that. So that was, that was awesome. Uh, and then that quote about the self-love really, really hit me today. Mickey? Yep, I found it. Okay. <laughs> so, uh, let me say this first. So, what I really appreciated about the style of interview here, and this is sort of saying in a different way a version of what Brandon said, is this is a surefire, quintessential example of letting the interview come to you as a journalist. I think um that that is the thing that really stood out she recognized very early on the style of speaker that her interview subject was uh 
and allowed for herself to go into more listening mode rather than I pre-prepared this interview mode, even though I have talking points in the back of my head. And the most intriguing sequences are when I take the sense that she's going off the cuff and the questions seem very indirect response to exactly what he just said and sort of start to flow. My favorite section of that is when she she starts with a question you referred to yourself as a commodity, which stuck out to me. How do you stay authentic while knowing that for many you are something to be consumed, which goes back to something else he said, but is also a very like structured question. Then he gives an explanation. She says, do you feel misunderstood? And that goes into a sort of deep dive about the misunderstanding of um, being in America, being in Chicago. He says, by the time you reach about 11, 11 or 12 in America as a black boy, you're now treated as a threat if you can make it that far. So then I understood myself as a black man because I saw how I was being treated by police figures of authority. Also, I got tired of feeling like I didn't belong or I wasn't accepted. I learned America's most widely understood language, violence. Violence is the language America understands. When I was in high school, that's when I really grasped that there will be no belittling me if I punch you in the fucking mouth. So I just started to live that way. (laughs) Then... But then Jade very poignantly asks, but in your eyes, it's survival, not violence, which then in, <laughs> triggers Vic to go into his sort of enlightenment therapeutic journey about how that violence was all covering up for a level of sadness, which is to me of, of the most vulnerable sections of the interview, which came right after. Um, and I'll just read actually the second paragraph of his response, which probably is my that that like hit me in the core of of the whole interview. I went down that road to get away from sadness. Ultimately, though, it really only made me more empty. I went to the drugs that helped for a little while, but then it really only made me more empty. I found fame and money. You think that would help but the drugs and the violence was clouding any appreciation I could have of the success. I always lashed out externally or what we call in 12 step acted out externally to mask the anger I felt with myself for not being white. So really getting to the core of all of the work that he's done, that feels like the centerpiece sort of of the piece from bad boy to good man. And like Brandon said before, that it is a sort of winding exploration of the continued journey rather than the destination, um, which is something that Vic has accepted. The piece is very much in, uh, is Vin Vic? I was about to say Vince because you said Vince earlier. Vic is really showing his cards in the sort of the the pronged, multi pronged approach to to you know self cent uh not self cent to centeredness <laughs> in himself and centering himself. Deepak Chopra, you can hear hear a lot of Eckhart Tolleisms throughout this piece. Yeah, for sure. And Brandon's told me that he told him to read uh-huh. The Power of Now. Uh, and you can hear, see the therapy in the 12 step, um, and how he's, he's, you know, finding it's a really kind of cool exploration of the curation that he's done to sort of find his own path to his own centeredness. Um, I, I don't even know if that's a word, but it's the word I want to use for this. Cause that's what it feels like. Um, so yeah, I, again, just to go back to my original point, um, I think it's so important with a, an interview subject like this, a person like this that you're speaking to when you sort of undertake a beat when you are present and you feel a way um, of how the interview is going to go to realize in certain instances you need to curate and in certain instances you need to let the interview come to you and that's what this felt like and I think that is what allowed it to be so poignant overall 
Yeah, and I want to I want to talk like so I've been since I interviewed Vic for uh, OK Player, I've been like slowly working my way through a list of book recommendations um, that he made and that he has been sending um, to incarcerated individuals as part of his uh, cannabis business, 93 Boys. So if you're in Chicago um, and you smoke, buy that 93 Boys. Um, Vic is using it to send literature to prisons. But you can see bits of, as I have like worked my way through this reading list, you can see bits of like wisdom that he is pulling from all over the place in these books. And Mickey, um, you specifically there just mentioned the 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 Mick uh, Vic dealing with his own like sense of, of of violence and like how you know you're born into violence, how violence is the language of America, how violence is the language of patriarchy, um, and that definitely speaks. The one I'm I'm working on now is the Will to Change, uh, which is a Bell Hooks book, and I want to read this just little quick quote from this book um, because you can see in the way that Vic talks how this this kind of stuff is like always in the back of his mind. Um, So Bell Hooks here is quoting from uh, Barbara Deming, and she says, I think the reason that men are so very violent is that they know deep in themselves that they're acting out a lie. And so they're furious at being caught up in the lie, but they don't know how to break it. They're in a rage because they are acting out a lie, which means that in some deep part of themselves, they want to be delivered from it or homesick for the truth. And so you can see, you know, when when. When Vic says, you know, I really grew up loving violence. I loved violence since I was a small child. Um, and then he comes so honest with 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 the interviewer and and then through the interviewer through with the reader um, through coming to terms with, you know, identifying that, like, violence is not a part of my manhood. Like violence is a part of the language that has been in, in, ingrained into me. Um, through the society that I've grown up in. Violence is expected of me, but it's not me. It's not who I am. Um, and the other big one too, The Power of Now, um, Eckhart Tolle, like you can see so many bits of that like laced throughout here in the way, um, even when you listen to him speak, which I know this is a written one, so it's kind of hard to imagine that. But when you listen to him speak, he's very present all the, like, and, and very selective with word choice. Like he'll speak slowly, which is, is funny because you see these big kind of chunks of of transcript that like read very smooth. Um, but he but he speaks slow and he chooses like carefully those words and he often like pauses and thought. And so you can get this like full picture of all these different places he's pulling from. Um, and it's one reason I think, you know, I mentioned earlier, like why Vince Staples, his video interviews are so exciting. Um, Vince seems to speak by using as few words as he possibly can to get across like the most poignant meeting, um, which, you know, speaks well for video, whereas Vic speaks well for like reading because of that, like slow, thoughtful, methodical process of speaking that then translates into these like really, really sharp paragraphs. The other big thing that this piece sort of reminded me of in my own sort of journalistic journey is how, uh, important it is to get interviews from artists not directly aligned with the album cycle um yeah that's like a a a huge thing that allows for these more internal conversations um i i got i've only been able to do that my own self one time with thundercat which was still one of my favorite funny enough the interview was really good when it happened but one of my favorite transcripts i've like put together and then looked at and been like man that's it it's because it's like not 
it's inherently not directly connected to like, oh, but we got to talk about the album points for me as the journalist, but also for the artists themselves, because they're not like, well, I got to talk about this thing that I'm promoting. Like when that thought's not there, you can sort of talk about the music in general in like retrospect or in future context, but it's not like the present thought, which can often lead to sort of winding and interesting overarching conversations about them as a person rather than them as an artist, which is, Mm -hmm. uh, it's super rare, first of all, for uh, editors to accept those pieces <laughs> and for, well, I mean, actually, probably even more rare for PR to pitch to pitch you on interviewing the artist for in, in not an album cycle. That's not really how the like rotation of everything works. But yeah, I think this was like a super huge example of like, especially for someone who's doing so much shit as Vic is that it provides this ability to look on a deeper contextual level um yeah that's how i felt with thundercat yeah i mean the whole news peg of this story is just a new single um but i don't even they mention the single in the actual transcript like maybe once or twice which is shout out to like you know needing more space to do these kind of interviews because look at like look at the amazing conversation that we wouldn't have if we solely like stuck to you know, very clear news pegs of album cycles. Yeah. Hey, break the cycle, man. Get, get <laughs> lost in the sauce. Yeah, shouts Jade for breaking the cycle. We're trying out here, yeah. all of us. <laughs> trying to get these pitches accepted off album cycle. But that's like the kind <laughs> of funny thing with, with editors, right? Is they'll be like, okay, so like, is this around? I've had that conversation in the emails, right? Like, is this around the project? Can we be really timely with this quote unquote? And it's, uh, the, the answer I always want to give is yes, but not timely in the context of when the album drops. Yeah. It can sometimes yeah. just speak to like where we are as a society or where the artist is. Yeah. And as they're trying to process it, because like, here's the thing, it's probably best, sometimes it's probably best that we get these more human, humanist pieces yeah. before, before an out al- before an album or like not in the midst of like that stuff. Cause like, Hey, then you truly, once you hit, hear the album, you're like, Oh, I, I have an even more full body experience now. And I've actually gotten a chance to digest everything they've said as opposed to just trying to hear it within a context of a, of a song or album or EP. Yeah. Brandon closing closing thoughts this this piece also just yeah. felt, I have to say this this piece felt like so directed at like Brandon's mind <laughs> as soon as I started reading this I was like of course you brought this <laughs> oh yeah I mean that, it was great yeah. it was that, so that, yeah nothing makes me more excited than the potential to like just sit down and talk with someone about the intersection of spirituality and music um specifically spirituality and hip-hop like yeah there's so much there but there's not like we talked about there's not always like good angles to pitch that you know it's it's like actually i've been trying to pitch forever i've been i've been trying to pitch like yo let me just talk to killer mike about unions like let me just talk to him (laughs) about organ organizing in in art and musicians and but there's not like a real clear you know news peg to the conversation you know and it's the same one with this and it's this interview as long and thorough as it is and well done as it is it still makes me want to like call up Vic and be like yo let's talk about the interview like let's do an interview about the interview let's let's there's so much more we can like unpack here so many questions Mm -hmm. I have just based on what you're giving me here right 
Sure. He, uh, he probably would be down for it too, honestly. It's like no, I mean, yeah. from like this interview, you would probably think he he might even be down for it if I yeah. find a publication. If that's yeah. like that's for it. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I, I mean, I said it at the beginning, but I feel like that's almost the title of this episode, right? It's like re- pieces that spark reverberating conversations. That's like Ooh. the big thing. That's actually to me, like really the through line of all three of these pieces. Um, is it just makes you want to either talk to the person more or talk to people who you care about more about, you know, you know, with Vic Mensa, it has to do with your own like personal enlightenment slash therapeutic journey with, you know, how TikTok works is sparking different conversations about how, you know, black women have to maneuver the music business and how those spaces all work and how social media works. We could talk about it. And then, you know, obviously the misogynoir uh, of the Chris Brown sort of saga of things it sparks plenty more conversation so definitely shout out all the writers here who just sparked us to have even more in-depth conversations Thanks. yeah and yeah just to recap those writers too as we're wrapping up here um in order so we we just talked about tiktok is making space for today's women in rap to thrive by Najera perkins for pop sugar um then we discussed why do so many black women keep working with chris brown by hannah pfeiffer uh, for Refinery29, and we closed out on Vic Mensa, From Bad Boy to Good Man, by Jade Gomez, for paper. Um, as always, guys, if you're an independent writer, if you're reading the work of independent writers, uh, send us your stuff, send us their stuff. Uh, we really want to work on platforming, you know, a lot of smaller writers who maybe aren't quite getting their stuff seen as much as it could be, um, smaller publications that are doing interesting stuff that, you know, doesn't align with the typical news cycles uh, that we we kind of discussed here um we want to read it we may feature it on the podcast we may chat about it um other than that leave us a review five stars would be lovely you can now leave reviews on spotify um so we don't have very many there yet so so get on if that's where you're listening and hit that review um yeah thanks for listening guys uh hit us up on twitter with you know thoughts on the episode or anything like that you can find us at central sauce Yes, yes. Thanks for listening. Thank you. This episode of Essential Source featured Michaela Back, Brandon Hill, and Tyler Jones of Essential Source Creative Collective. The episode is edited by me, Charlie Taylor, of the Fifth End Podcast Network. Music for the show. Start by Basti. Thanks to your music for the bits to use. This has been Central Source and Fifth Element Podcast and Production. Thanks to Basti, Chop Music, Central Source, Fifth Element, and content covered in the episode can all be found in the full show notes below. Thanks for listening. We hope to see you next time as we continue our search for Source.